All right. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Welcome, welcome back. So, um, if you will allow, uh, we have a lot of reporters in the room, uh, lots of members of the press, and also we're in community, we're in mishpacha here, that's what we call it at Manny's. Um, and I would love to ask folks to tell a couple of their... Yeah, you can just turn it off, it's fine. That never happens, wow. Um, the, the mics are excited. So um, we're not going to use the mic, just going to call on you. I'm going to start by saying my first apartment in San Francisco is at 21st in Florida. Um, I found it on Craigslist at the, the original Phil's, which is sadly now closing. Um, it was the most ramshackle of apartments. It was the third floor of a Victorian, and in this one floor there were seven people that lived there, including in one bedroom, a mother, father, three-year-old, and a dog in one room. Um, there were every single square inch of this apartment was taking over, including there was a, I kid you not, an actual closet that was definitely not legal for someone to live in, and a flight attendant would stay there for $300 a month. My room was $500 a month, and it was so small that when I walked in, I had to turn to the left and look up, and I had to climb these extremely steep stairs and go to a, a lofted bed where the ceiling was about two inches from my nose. And my living space was just the area underneath the bed. Um, but I could afford it, and it was my apartment. And uh, I actually don't miss it, but it was a great way to get introduced to the city. So that was mine. All right, let's get a couple stories from people. Who's got a rough housing story to share? You got a rough one? Go ahead and just project, because we're having some mic issues. Good evening, everybody. My name's Jose Pecho. Oh, um, hey! What's up? <laughs> <laughs> I coached high baseball back in the days. What oh, my God. Anyway, so I... Was he good at baseball? He went on to play the city college. Oh, okay. Oh. Anyway, small world. Um, I owe a big debt of gratitude to the city. And I, and, I, and I do all I can to try to help our communities understand, you know, that pursuit of fairness, whatever that might be, whether it's housing, business, you know, whatever that is. And so I owe this debt of gratitude to the city of San Francisco because when my parents immigrated here in 1962, we ended up in housing in San Francisco at Hunter's Point where kids shouldn't even be raised because it was a war zone. But, it, but the pro projects worked as intended back there. It was able to help prop my parents up long enough where we could move out, of Noe Valley, move out to Noe Valley. And so for, for whatever pursuits that you guys have, you know, whatever projects are, we're going out here, these discussions are so important. I really appreciate being part of this. Thank you very much. Thank you, Coach. <laughs> Love that. I don't know if that qualifies as a terrible housing story. That sounded kind of like a good one, but thank you for sharing it. I appreciate it. Let's get a couple more. Uh, did you raise your hand? Yes, go ahead. Uh, yes, yes. If you don't mind just projecting, though. Yeah, yeah, it's you. Yeah. But um, still, it sucked, and 
it could have cast me out from the events of a lot of people during that time period. Um, mm. I still live in the area and I walk by there frequently and gaze longing to the house. But um, anyway, it's just a, a quick snapshot. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, that sad story. I'm sorry that you were evicted. Let's get a couple more. Yes, go ahead. Um, You're close enough. Yeah. And then, Emily, do you mind just making it a little bit louder? Thank you so much. Just the main one. Yeah, thank you. Great, go ahead. Uh, yeah, this was just four months ago, and I still live there actively trying to move. Uh, it's now month to month, so it's easier. Uh, but uh, I signed a lease. That's one of those uh, weirdly crafted things where you pay rent to a master tenant, and the master tenant is like some intermediary property manager that then pays rent to the landlord and but the master tenant doesn't actually even live in your house they just are a master tenant which is a company called vibe living which should be a red flag uh uh it's v y b -E yes, never tenant. trust never trust a company <laughs> called vibe living <laughs> and and if you look up the ceo his last company was telecom companies so so he has a ah uh, yes a the great telecom <laughs> companies yeah so a string of uh innocuous named companies but uh but yeah, uh, apparently one day we just got these notices and the next door neighbors are also part of Vibe Living and they had their locks changed on them and the landlord is putting out notices saying stop paying rent to Vibe, pay rent to us. Vibe has been basically trafficking the rent and keeping it and uh, Vibe sends us notices saying no, don't listen to them, pay rent to us. Uh, oh my God, <laughs> sound, sounds like bad vibes. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, you set me up for that? Yeah, thank you. Uh, one two punch yeah. Uh, but yeah no that's that's uh, and then we're just stuck in this limbo of three months of figuring out who to pay rent to yeah uh, and if you're late on rent you get fined so it's like this and I live with 20 something kids that got laid off and didn't want to do anything about it so as wow. they say I had to man up or whatever that version of being the dad is and go <laughs> going to the tenants union and asking hiring a lawyer shelling 1500 bucks to uh Get a, get a housing attorney to just that help is figure out. That is so like, messed up. Yeah, well, I still live there, so I haven't figured it out. <laughs> okay, let's send you some good vibes to figure that out. Okay, let's get one or two more. How about on this side, maybe in the back? Do we have a, a rough housing story? One last one? Okay, go ahead. You will be the final rough housing story. Ooh. Oh, hello? Hi, my name is Emily. Um, I don't coach baseball, sorry. <laughs> uh, I lived in a house in Illinois that was built in the 1950s, and I don't know what it is about your early 20s that just makes like borderline inhumane like conditions really charming and nostalgic to live in, but I had that experience. It was very old and very moldy and very cold, um, and a family of raccoons moved into our attic because we live next to the forest preserve. And they started drinking the runoff from our HVAC line, which caused a ceiling leak, which caused a three by three, like gaping hole in our ceiling to cave in while I was interviewing for the job that I have now. And then, um, so we called uh, people to come fix it. And they said they would come tomorrow because it was an emergency, but that was not fast enough because 12 hours later at one in the morning, a baby raccoon crashed through the ceiling hole into my house and I had to call friends to come help me remove the baby raccoon and they're really strong. <laughs> oh my God, can we just, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Did you get the job? You got the job. Congratulations, mazel tov to her. Mazel tov. 
Um, thank you for sharing your rough housing stories. I hope that created a little bit of empathy among us um, and some community. So I really, really appreciate it. We all have our story. And with that, I'm going to introduce Annie Goss from the SF Standard to tell us about tonight's amazing conversation with two of my favorite legislators ever, Scott Wiener and Myrna Melgar. Annie Goss. Uh, anyone. Right. Hey, everybody. Uh, thank you again so much for being here. And it looks like our um, our guests are here in the corner. Um, just to introduce myself, my, my name is Annie Gauss. I'm a senior editor at the San Francisco Standard. Um, among other things, I edit our Power Play political newsletter that goes out on Sunday nights, where we cover housing policy quite frequently, among many other things. Um, and this is going to be our first of hopefully many, many conversations about some of the biggest issues facing San Francisco. And um, there's Arguably, you know, as we've all <laughs> just discussed, no greater issue facing the city um, than housing. It, it touches so many people's lives, and it touches so many other important things that we write about, everything from homelessness to the economy. And so I'm very excited to welcome our excellent panelists, uh, State Senator Scott Wiener, Supervisor Myrna Melgar. Um, come on up. Scott, good to see you. Yeah, cozy. All right. <laughs> um, so quick introductions. Uh, State Senator Scott Wiener, um, also a former member of the Board of Supervisors, who's been a real pioneer on housing policy at the state level. Supervisor Myrna Melgar, who, uh, among other distinctions, was a former planning commissioner and is chair of the Land Use Committee on the Board of Supervisors, so two of the most knowledgeable people around about housing. So we kicked off with the audience um, by asking folks to share their housing horror stories. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you to do the same. Do you have any terrible experiences with housing in the Bay Area or elsewhere that you'd like to share? Is it OK if I start? Hi, Scott. Good to see you. <laughs> and hi, Annie. Hi, everybody. Um, so, you know, I am an immigrant to the U.S. Um, my family came to San Francisco from El Salvador when I was 12 during the Civil War. Um, and when we first moved here, we lived in a little studio apartment off Mission Street uh, in the Outer Mission near the border with Daly City. Um, and my sisters and I, it was a studio with a walk-in closet, and my sisters and I slept in the closet uh, on bunk beds, and my uh, baby sister on a mattress on the floor. And um, it was an old, old Victorian building that was falling apart. There were cockroaches and mice and all that stuff. It was a shock, because uh, we had a nice house in El Salvador. Um, and uh, it was uh, really just so rough. So my dad, you know, we did all those immigrant jobs and eventually were able to move out um, into a place that was, you know, better, no, no cockroaches. Um, and I just had this sense. I remember uh, being in school and we had this um, thing, you know, where an activity where we had to draw a map of our house. And all the other kids drew maps of their houses. And I was so embarrassed that I, like, I faked it, you know. I just, like, I was just, like, I, I didn't want to tell people, yeah, my sister's and I sleep in the closet. So um, that place has now been demolished. Uh, the city of Daly City has turned it into a parking lot. And it's been a parking lot for, like, 30 years. And I hope that, uh, you know, one of these days um, they're going to turn it into housing. So that's my sad story. All right. 
Uh, hi, everyone. I want to thank the standard for uh, hosting uh, hosting this. I, I see a lot of really unfamiliar faces, so which is great to engage more and more people uh, in the housing conversation. So thanks for being here. Um, I'm, I actually have three things that sort of all form together that together, I think, show the, the, the horror of uh, of housing in this uh, city and the damage that it inflicts on uh, on people. When I first moved here, I moved here in 1997. I moved here from the East Coast. And I had rented different apartments uh, over time through school and after school. And I came out here thinking, oh, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. You just sort of go and you find an apartment. You like you sign the lease and it's done. Um, I uh, The first day that I was looking here was a Saturday. Uh, and I, I go out to the first open house I went to. It was an open house in the hate. Um, and I, I walk up thinking I'm just going to go and look and see if I like it and then sign a lease if I like it. There was a line down the block. And I was like, I, I just, I didn't even know what to make of it. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Um, and then I went in to the open house. I waited in line and I got in. People were trying to bribe the landlord um, to sign the lease. And that was like my first, it was horrifying that, that, that that's what it was happening. Then I, I moved here, and um, I was a young lawyer, and I was doing a lot of pro bono work uh, representing low-income renters who were facing eviction. And I will never forget that my, the first, second case that I had, it was an older gay man, long-term HIV survivor um, who had been here for decades. This was his home. Um, and he was uh, telling me, he told me, um, if I lose this um, apartment, I have a choice of either being homeless in San Francisco, where I can at least get good HIV care, or moving back to the South, where I'm from, where I'll be able to be not homeless, uh, but I won't have access to any kind of decent HIV care. And then the, so I saw my own experience, then I saw this gentleman's uh, horror st true horror story and then I got involved in the neighborhood. I saw from the other angle when we had a, a very good project, the, the Whole Foods project at Dolores and Market, beautiful building, totally code compliant, totally compliant with the zoning, with all the rules. And it had to go through 50 5-0 community meetings over years before it finally was even eligible to go to the Planning Commission for consideration of whether we were going to deign to allow them to build new housing that we had already zoned for. And so I saw it from the horror from all the different angles, and it all summed up. All right, well, thank you for that. Um, so maybe we can just start by kind of talking about where we are as a city right now. Um, we're facing this state mandate that we have to accommodate 82,000 new housing units over the last uh, over the next eight years, and that's, that's a lot. Um, and um, and yet, currently, we're really not building very much housing. I just checked the numbers on the state um, housing department website. We permitted something like 2,800 units last year, um, which puts us nowhere near on pace to meet, meet that target. Um, so I want to just start by asking both of you, you know, why are we in this position right now? Why is it so difficult to get housing built currently in San Francisco? Well, right at this moment, it's a variety of reasons, and there are some economic reasons um, as well. But, but over time, because every you can't just look at one year, right? It's like over time, uh, what's happening, um, and San Francisco 
has set up a system, and we're not the only one, but we're at the extreme end. We've set up a system around housing that is designed to fail. The system that we have in San Francisco was created primarily in the 70s and the 80s because people, the people who were making decisions did not want to build housing. They didn't want to change anything about the city. They wanted to freeze frame it as it is. And there, there was a member of the Board of Supervisors at the time when these decisions were um, uh, being made, Supervisor Gonzalez, who said, if we do, if we enact all these policies restricting housing, it is going to push people out of the city, it's going to explode housing costs, it's going to increase car pollution, and all of that has happened. So we, we, we adopted zoning that makes it, until very recently, illegal to build anything other than a single family home in big swaths of the city. I live in the Castro, a neighborhood with two subway, uh, subway stops, multiple bus stops, geographic center of the city. You can literally walk downtown if you want to. And, and until very recently, it was only for either two or three units. The 39 unit building that I live in, built in 1965, would be illegal. So we locked down the zoning and made, and made a math problem that you cannot build enough homes compared to what we need. And then on top of it, we decided that even if you comply with all the zoning, if you check all the boxes, the height, the density, the setbacks, the design, comply with all the rules that we told you you have to comply with, normally, under any system of good government, you check all the boxes, you get your permit. No questions asked, because we told you what the rules were ahead of time. You complied with the rules. No. In San Francisco, if you comply with all the rules that we told you, all that does is make you eligible to enter a, politi a political gladiator contest and see if you can possibly fight your way into getting the permit. And maybe you'll get chopped in half. Maybe it'll get shot down. Maybe it'll get delayed years and years and years. Um, because we've empowered, everything is discretionary. Every permit is discretionary in San Francisco, so that makes it all subject to environmental laws, even if it has nothing to do with the environment. It makes it all appealable. To, you have to planning commission or to the Board of Permit Appeals or appealable to the Board of Supervisors. It makes it all subject to lawsuits. Everything becomes a political issue. Everything becomes subject to appeals and litigation, and that's the system we've set up in San Francisco. Instead of saying, we need housing, let's make it easy, breezy, fast. If you, if you comply with all the rules, you get your permit fast, and we're not gonna put fees on there that add hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, per new home. We're just going to let it get built, and we're gonna facilitate it. We, we, are, we need to break that mentality, and that is a big fundamental reason. There are economic reasons on top of it, absolutely, but those come and go. And we have to have a system that is ready when the economy shifts in a way that people really, really, really want to build so that they start building. And we're not shifting nearly quickly enough. So if I could just add a little bit about the economic uh, stuff that we're going through right now. Um, our housing element uh, committed us to building a bunch of housing, and particularly affordable housing on the west side, which is unheard of politically uh, in San Francisco. Um, we have uh, two very large projects already entitled in my district, the Balboa Reservoir um, and Park Merced, which was entitled in 2011. Um, and, uh, you know, neither one is moving the way we thought 
they would because it doesn't quite pencil out right now. Um, so there's things that we are trying to do. Uh, we have created an infrastructure financing uh, mechanism to help them both, um, hopefully at some point. Um, some we're playing around with like green infrastructure stuff. Uh, I, I see our um, OCII director here and uh, there's good minds uh, thinking about it. But I also think that there's a really important role for government to play, including the state, uh, in terms of financing affordable housing. Because uh, the Balboa Reservoir, for example, um, is 50% affordable. We were supposed to start building some of the market-rate townhomes first and using the proceeds to cross-subsidize some of the affordable housing. But because interest rates are so high right now, that's not happening. So what the developer has decided to do is to flip the script and build the affordable housing first uh, because we already have that money. And that will allow us to put in the roads, the infrastructure, the stuff that all the housing is going to need, which is a, a smart move. You know, So we're going to do that. But I think that you know we are coming up for a bond in front of the voters in March for affordable housing. We're coming up for a regional bond in November, which is like unheard of too, like because you know people in the peninsula don't play so well, you know, uh, you know, uh, in terms of affordable housing. There's folks who are still like fighting that housing element uh, in the peninsula. But you know, we I'm hopeful that you know now that there's a recognition of our shared pain, um, folks will get us there. So I uh, encourage everyone to uh, watch out for those things because I think they're a really important thing. Because once you mobilize the construction crew, once you build the infrastructure, it just makes it easier for everyone. And yes, we'll keep working on the zoning and process stuff, but it all goes together. And I think it's really important. I, if I could just add, and I fully, we, we have to do more on funding. San Francisco has really been, you know, I think very aggressive on funding. We have, uh, our last governor was opposed to affordable housing uh, funding, so that was very painful every year. Our current governor is not, so we've dramatically increased state investment um, in affordable housing. But the funding has to be coupled with regulatory reform. And there's an example right now in San Francisco on in the sunset, which has seen almost no new housing in recent years. There is an excellent project, 100% affordable housing project for a combination of low and, and, and very low uh, income on Irving Street, being built by the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Center. Um, it actually fully funded, ready to go. It's actually utilizing a law that I um, authored, SB 35, to streamline the approval. But, but despite that, <laughs> but, 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 this, but despite that, because San Francisco sometimes can't get out of its own way, that project, which should have received all of its permitting within months, San Francisco found a way to allow opponents to gum it up, and it has been going on for years. It has now been appealed twice to the Board of Permit Appeals. Um, fortunately, the board fi finally rejected the final permit because of the quirkiness. San Francisco has a unique structure that is uniquely designed to empower anyone, even if you represent 1% of the neighborhood, you have the power to gum up a project, and San Francisco empowers that. So even when we have the funding, we still find a way uh, to make it hard. And, and Park Merced, I just wanna, um, before Annie kills me, um, uh, <laughs> Park Merced is an excellent project. It's replacing 1,500 um, very aged 
not in great shape homes with 6,000 homes. Hopefully they'll be able to use density bonus and make that even more. Um, I was one of the, it was a six to five vote on the Board of Supervisors. I supported it when we entitled it in 2012. Um, and um, it has not been built because we actually, and I take responsibility, I mean, we all live and learn. We put so many financial obligations in that developer. They have to build a new subway line, which we should be building out of tax dollars. And we, 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 we put so much on it that, uh, that, not surprisingly, it needs to be reconfigured because it's not going to pencil out. So we, we sort of learn, I think, from our own mistakes. And I own that I was part of that process. So I just want to get a sense of the audience. How many people know what the housing element is? Could define it in one sentence. Okay, all right. Okay, we got some nerds in the room. That's good. Um, so, so basically, um, the Board of Supervisors approved unanimously uh, the, the housing element, um, and now we're kind of in the process of converting that into legislation, pieces of legislation that involve process reform as well as zoning reform that I think will come later. Um, uh, Supervisor, you know, there's um, going to be a process reform bill coming before the Land Use Committee called the... There's several. There's but, yes. multiple bills, but there's a big one called the Constraints Reduction Ordinance. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So uh, uh, Mayor Breed uh, introduced uh, legislation that she worked on with a bunch of advocates to uh, reduce some of the process issues that uh, Senator Weiner just talked about, uh, the multiple appeals, the um, sort of redundancy, some of the quirks that are unique uh, to San Francisco. Um, and uh, the way that she did it um, is uh, based on an analysis of um, what the city looks like. So, you know, for many years, oh, so I'm just going to go back and geek out a little bit about the politics. And I think that the period uh, that you were talking about um, in sort of the 70s and 80s, when uh, folks started implementing all of these like challenges uh, to development, um, was a time when there was an alliance that was made, I think, between wealthier. Uh, homeowners on the west side who mostly were white um, with folks on the uh, east side of town uh, who were worried about gentrification and displacement in the neighborhoods. And so there was a political alliance, alliance I think, that was made that was like, okay, if we don't build anything, we'll all be safe. We can, uh, you know, preserve our privilege and you guys will be okay. But, you know, here we are 30 years later um, and it's been terrible for folks because while it preserved the privilege of some, uh, it created an acute housing shortage for everyone, including the children and grandchildren of the wealthy homeowners on the west side of town, who now are seeing that you know their kids or grandkids don't quite want to live the same way that they do. So the impediments legislation uh, looks at the reality that not all neighborhoods in San Francisco are the same. There are neighborhoods where there is toxic pollution. There's neighborhoods where people are more low income and concentrates the sort of process improvements on the neighborhoods that don't have those impediments. And so I think it's uh, you know uh, pretty smart uh, to do it that way politically. Um, we will see what happens. I ha I'm the chair of the Land Use and Transportation Committee, so I get to schedule stuff. So I have scheduled, we're noticing it, we're scheduling it for the second meeting uh, in September. Um, and I uh, predict that there will be lots of, um, 
interest, uh, public comment, <laughs> and uh, maneuvering. So um, just before the break, you know, we were able to pass legislation to um, at streamline to get rid of the impediments for up to four units uh, on the west side where now they're single family home and you know folks didn't think that we were going to be able to pull that off but 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 we did in that tiny little legislation which was my legislation along with supervisor uh, and guardio um, took us almost 10 months to get through the land use and transportation committee and i um you know work with the environmentalist folks with the tenants with the, you know like i was making sure that folks um issues were addressed a lot of those issues were political not exactly substantive so if if that little piece of legislation took us that long i'm wondering you know what's going to happen with this and um you know but i i will do my best <laughs> We're also in this position right now where the state is really watching what we're doing. I mean, they launched this review um, last year of our, our housing practices. You know, there have been multiple stern letters sent to the city, you know, over various actions to project housing. And, you know, Senator Weider, like, how much wiggle room do we have right now to kind of tinker with pieces of legislation to the point where the state might kind of bring the hammer down on us? Yeah, uh, none. Um, so <laughs> so San, San Francisco is on, I, I have to sit, this is my city and I love this city and I'm so honored to represent, San Francisco is on thin ice. Um, and it's not the only one. I mean, the, San, the state has sued uh, other cities um, and has, has cracked down on other cities that are, you know, really uh, recalcitrant. Um, San Francisco um, received this practices letter or this l unprecedented letter from the state asked, doing a top to bottom uh, review of San Francisco's housing practices. In addition, San Francisco's housing element, yes, it commits to rezoning and the 82,000 new homes, but it also commits to a, a, a laundry list of policy reforms about fee, reducing fees uh, around um, pro, you know different pro process and ap approval um, uh, um, problems that are causing obstacles uh, to new homes. There's a series of things that San Francisco, some of which have to be done by January of 2024, the rest by January of 2026. So San Francisco has already agreed with the unanimous vote of the Board of Supervisors to this compliant housing element. 11 nothing vote from the board, so thank you, Supervisor, for that, for what I think is a very strong housing element. And that housing element commits San Francisco to all of these reforms, which is great, and now they have to actually be enacted. And so I think the Board of Supervisors has remarkably little wiggle, wiggle room to do that. They have to be enacted, and if they're not enacted, then San Francisco will fall out of compliance in its housing element, and then something called the builder's remedy can kick in, um, which what you call the, the, the chaos situation, um, where builders can come in and build outside of zoning. Uh, they can say, I know it's only zoned for four stories here. I want to build 15 stories here. And this is, this is happening in other, <laughs> yeah, this is happening in other cities around the state, but a lot of cities do not have compliant housing elements. And, and, and there's a lot of some ambiguity around the builder's uh, remedy, uh, but it, it it, it, San, San Francisco needs to just enact the reforms that are committed to enact uh, via the housing element. Yeah. So th there's another piece of this, which is zoning. And um, the housing element really put a focus on 
parts of your district. Um, it really um, emphasized development on the west side of the city. And you know, as a supervisor who represents parts of that city, I mean, what kind of conversations do you have to have with your constituents, who some of whom I imagine are not necessarily uh, excited about you know, density in their neighborhoods. Yeah, some of my folks are definitely not happy. Um, but you know, I think, so I when I ran for this seat um, three years ago, um, I ran on a pro-housing uh, platform. Um, and I um, was, you know, I had all these conversations with folks. My district, District 7, is you know, easily the NIMBYist district, uh, but it's also the one that is the most diverse uh, in terms of the progressive voter index. It's got folks who are very, very progressive and folks who are very conservative. It's got the second highest concentration of Republican voters in San Francisco. And, you know, I, what I think is happening is actually a generational change. That's where I see the starkest dividing line is older folks, uh, you know, tell me that single family zoning is sacrosanct, Mirna. <laughs> and then younger folks say, no, we really want um, bigger, you know, more density, but also, you know, access to public transportation. And they want, you know, things, they, they want to live on the land in different ways. And I think that that is a good thing. There is a generational change, a change of expectations, and uh, the district has been moving towards that. So, uh, for example, the Balboa Reservoir took two tries before it got entitled in years, and they created a committee, and it was, but uh, Stonestown, which is going to come to the Planning Commission uh, early next year, is actually breezing through. I think people have now, you know, sort of... Um, understood uh, that there is this need. Um, and some of the sort of talking points that were really common 10 years ago are not so much. Um, and at the same time, I think uh, the younger folks have organized, they've created lists, they have all kinds of things going on that when these things happen, that people are mobilized and ready to go. And I think that that's also a good thing. I mean, one of the common anxieties that I think that I hear, um, you know, a lot, um, it, is that adding more density is going to tax infrastructure in these neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, Supervisor, um, Senator Weiner, I know that's something that you've done a, a lot of work on. You know, how do we make sure that our infrastructure is ready for potentially greater population in some of these areas? I mean, we, we need, um, but I, one, one thing I forgot to mention before, it would have been, what the reforms that we have to do now around process would be a lot easier if we've been able to pass Proposition D. Um, last year, um, I want to thank the supervisor for supporting D and for voting against Proposition E at the Board of Supervisors, which was a sabotage member, a sabotage uh, measure that dragged Prop D down. And Prop D, for those who don't remember, uh, would have eliminated the the politicized discretion that goes with every single housing project, and would have said, if you meet the rules, you get your permit. So thank you for your for your vote on that. Um, in terms of infrastructure. We need more housing, we need more infrastructure, we need both, we need to support both. Um, some people say you can't build any housing until you perfect your infrastructure. We hear that argument a lot, and that is an argument against building new housing. Because the way cities developed, you don't, it doesn't all like travel perfectly together, it never does. You, more people move somewhere, you build more homes for them, and then, there's a, you, and then your infrastructure isn't quite there, so you bulk up your infrastructure to keep up. And they don't all travel at exactly the same pace, um, so they shouldn't be tied together, because then that means you're going to do nothing. 
Um, but we have to do both, and we have to be deeply committed uh, to both. And, and and California has definitely fallen short. It's not not just a San Francisco thing. I think San Francisco actually does better than a lot of places. In terms, we have a capital plan. The voters have been so generous in authorizing bonds, and we do do a lot of good infrastructure work. But we have so much more to do. But the state of California has not prioritized infrastructure, and we see it in so in our sewer systems and water systems and our transit systems and by the way we have to save public transportation in the <laughs> bay area because if 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 bar if bar unravels and if muni cuts you know 12 or 15 or so bus lines entirely which could happen um we will be in a world uh, of hurt so we need we and i will also just say we're we're going to have a cataclysmic fight potentially ne in next november's statewide ballot um, an organization called the Business Roundtable, which typically is fronting for different industries, has qualified a measure that would require every single revenue measure in California, in California, state or local, has to be passed only by a two-thirds vote. Everything, including new fees, everything, two-thirds vote of the people. And so that it, it, that is designed to act absolutely kneecap the ability of government, particularly our local governments, to actually finance any of these improvements. Um, we have, uh, we're, uh, we're gonna have a competing measure to say that if you're trying to raise the threshold beyond the majority, you have to pass your measure by the majority that you're seeking to inflict <laughs> on everyone else. And so we're, there's, a, there's gonna be a lot going on uh, next year, but it's going to be it's going to be a battle for like, are we actually willing to make these investments, or are we going to make it impossible to make these investments? All right, there's a lot to watch out for on the ballot next year. Um, so I want to ask about one particular project uh, that we wrote about a, a few times, and that is uh, 2700 Sloat. Maybe some of you have read about it. Um, this is a 50-story tower that was proposed in the Sunset District that garnered a huge uh, outcry, not in your district, but very close to it. Um, and there's also a backstory that you should ask our reporter, Josh Kane, about later. <laughs> um, but... Um, it, this was so interesting because it kind of became a symbol in some ways um, for some of the anxieties that people have about what housing reforms could look like. It was rejected by the city. Um, that developer is now sued. So I'm going to put both of you on the spot and ask, should that 50-story tower be legal? I mean, that 50, it's been, the, first of all, the coverage has been amazing, and it's been just <laughs> fun sort of watching this play out. But, but let's, let's be clear, that, that project has always been, to me, a bit of a cartoon. Um, and so I'm very focused on projects that actually can get built. Um, and we have a lot of them all across the city, and they're not necessarily 50 stories, but they might be five or six or eight or 10 stories or 12 stories. And, um, and so I, I know people are really focused on that. And I know the, the, the developers have quite a history, as the standard has uh, pointed out. Um, but I, 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 to me, that project is a, um, it, it's a bit of a cartoon. Uh, and so uh, we have a lot of projects that actually can get built and that, can be, and that if we do what we should do, can get built rather quickly. And that is my focus. What I will say is 
putting aside whether it's 50 stories or 25 stories or whatever it is, that a much uh, smaller project was proposed at that exact site years ago, a much more, what most people would say, a more feasible um, uh, project that could actually get built. Um, and uh, there was a, all sorts of pushback, and that project got killed. Was it 12 stories, I think? Or it was still like a, a sizable, you know, tall building for the West Side. It got killed. Then they came back with 50 stories. We saw this play out recently in Knob Hill, um, where there was a project where someone wanted to sort of expand their home, and the city rejected their project. And then they came back and said, okay, we're, we're going to do 10 townhomes instead. And then there were people who got really mad about that, and that, that, that project hopefully will, uh, will happen, but the board of supervisors, at least for now, has rejected it. Um, but, but again, sometimes people, like someone proposes something, and then you, you fight against it, and you kill it, and then they come back with something that you really don't like. And so at some point, we just have to allow these things to happen because there are unintended consequences. So that's called spite. <laughs> you know, spite projects. And um, I think what's um, unfortunate about that 50-story building, so the other day, uh, my daughter and I, uh, drove, you know, we rode our bikes to the beach and we stopped at Java um, right next to where that project's going to be, and that's all everybody was talking about. The, the World Trade Center, that's what they were saying. It was, it's the World Trade Center on slope. Um, and uh, anger, you know, a lot of anger from folks. And what I think is unfortunate, after now, you know, having um, the Irving Street Project entitled um, and, you know, talking about density on commercial corridors, is that I think there is generally a vision that folks on the west side can embrace of, you know, a little bit more urban environment, a little more density, the tr urban transportation. Your kids can come back and live near you, you know. Uh, the west side can be a cool place. Um, but, you know, these uh, kinds of uh, projects, you know, the spike projects, kind of, you know, sort of poison the air for that vision, that version of something that could be positive could be really great. Um, and so I, um, you know, have spent a lot of time with my constituents around Stonestown because that concept is going to be really cool. There's, there's going to be, you know, several high rises, um, and it's going to be this like town center kind of cool concept where there's going to be open spaces and people can walk around. There's going to be bike lanes. So it's like a really positive vision that, you know, I think that people will eventually adopt. But, you know, when we're talking about the World Trade Center, it's like it kind of stops the conversation and then it polarizes it in a way that I don't think it's positive. Yeah. And I, and I agree that um, when, I, when I talk about like projects like can actually happen. I don't think that 50-story building is ever going to happen. That's why I call it a cartoon. But but Stonestown is an example of something that, um, and, and I'll, but I will say that Stonestown 10 years ago would have been like yeah. World War III. Yeah. And, 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 but I think now because of some of the progress, it's hard to overstate the shift in politics on, on, on housing. Um, and the fact that you won in District 7 on the platform that you had that that was a shift, and and even like I talked about Park Merced in 2012, 
that the 6,000 units uh, by Parkman said that we approved, which is so controversial. And 24, David Chu and I both voted for that on the Board of Supervisors. 2014, David Chu was getting attacked in his assembly race for having voted for that project. Two years later in 2016, I was criticizing my opponent for having opposed that project. So the politics have totally shifted. And Stonestown is a really great example uh, of that. There are people who are like, okay, we know stuff is happening. We love Stonestown. Please do Stonestown. And, and, and that, that's, that's progress in the politics, I think. So I, I just want to revisit um, avoid, affordable housing um, as well, um, because I know that's something that's very important to a lot of people. Um, and and that it's also a huge piece of the housing element, where something like, I think, 46,000 of the, the homes need to be affordable at kind of different levels um, as determined by the state. But Yes, yes, that is that is what we all would, would hope for. Um, but my question is, you know, we've talked about some bonds that are going to be um, up for consideration next year, but what else do we need to be doing to get that done so that people who are on modest incomes, fixed incomes, can afford to live here as well? We, we need to absolutely, we, the local stuff is good, the regional stuff is good, we need to do more out of the state budget. We've been trying, for, I want to give my credit to my um, my, my counterpart, the housing chair and the assembly, Buffy Wicks, who has been trying for years um, to do either a constitutional amendment to dedicate some general fund funding um, year in and year out to housing. She has a bond now for 24. I don't know what's going to happen with that. There's a lot of different bonds being proposed, and the dust has to settle on that. Um, but we need to be more committed um, from the state. The feds need to get involved as well. The federal government used to make massive investments uh, in housing, what we called public housing. We now call it social housing. And, and it was such a source of stability for working class families. And then Ronald Reagan put the final, like, death blow on it and and then that is one of the reasons why homelessness uh, has spiked so we need to see that investment but we also need to make sure that we are deploying the affordable housing dollars as efficiently as possible the cost per affordable unit in san francisco is way way too high it's not just us la is very high too this is a, a systemic problem uh, with, with costs that we need to get a handle on it one piece of that is the process it still takes too long um, to get these projects entitled. We're working on it. SB 35 has led to about over 3,000 affordable homes being approved in San Francisco. Um, we need to get that really quickly deployed. I will also want to put a plug in. We have a, a bill that I think has legs and is going to get hopefully signed in the law, Senate Bill 4 this year, which will allow religious institutions and nonprofit colleges to be automatically, automatically rezoned and automatically approved for 100% uh, affordable housing. Um, it will open up it is as the Turner Center has estimated will open up more than a hundred thousand acres of land in California dedicated to affordable housing, so they won't have to compete with the market rate uh, developers for that particular land. And even in San Francisco, in little teeny seven by seven San Francisco, there are a lot of religious institutions in this city that own more land than they need, that have parking lots that are bigger than they need, and it's very very exciting in terms of what that will do over time. I'm excited about it. There's a lot of those in District 7. Um, so I will say that I think that in San Francisco, we are remarkably conservative when it comes to building affordable housing, um, particularly around fa financing. We just are. Other cities uh, just kick our butt any day. 
um, in how they finance, what they produce, um, how they partner with other folks. Um, and, you know, we, I think, have a tiny little office, Mayor's Office of Housing, under the mayor, um, whereas New York has a department of, you know, housing preservation and development. And so I do think that there are ways that we could um, have new programs, uh, new financing sources, partner with the state, with private uh, interest to produce more housing. So, for example, uh, co-op housing is uh, one of the ways where, uh, you know, lower income people, working class folks um, have achieved uh, home ownership uh, in New York, in Chicago, in Washington, D.C. We have not produced any new co-op housing with the exception of, of one project um, since really the 70s. Um, we just stopped doing it. And then once you stop doing it, you know, you lose the expertise of the staff, of the relationship with the lenders. So that's one thing that we could do. Um, we, uh, you know, have a, a successor agency to the redevelopment agency um, that is doing, you know, really great things. And we have uh, efforts uh, at our state. Thank you, uh, Senator Weiner, for paying attention to the unique needs of folks who were displaced by uh, redevelopment. But I think that there is, there is so much uh, that we could do uh, to not just repair the harm, but also uh, new ways and new uh, creative ways to finance and build affordable housing. Cool. All right, well, I, there's one more question for me, and then we're going to open it up to a few questions from the audience. Um, if you could wave a, a magic wand and do one thing to make housing better in San Francisco, what would you do? I think if you if you meet all the rules, you get your permit like that. No, 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 poli no, poli no politics around. One thing, um, I would say um, easier access to money. So I think that if I, uh, you know, could wave a wand, um, I would. Um, sort of get rid of all of the impediments to that, because I think that there are many. Um, and uh, I think that that's also a big, big problem. All right. OK, who's got questions? And I have a mic to bring you okay. with my coffee. <laughs> We've got a question over here. OK, I'm coming to the back. And Emily, when you're at the mixer, can you turn the volume up for this mic a little bit? Thank you. Ooh, yay. I'm going to hold the mic for you. Sure. So my question is primarily for the supervisor. Um, it seems to me like a lot of these things are somewhat workable, like zoning can be tweaked, like um, funding can be found. But it seems to me like discretionary review is always going to be a problem. Like it can never work. It's always going to raise rent and cause like longer delays. And so I'm wondering, um, in your opinion, what is the like current um, attitude towards the in the like board of supervisors towards actually just cutting discretionary review and making housing by right? So discretionary review is in our charter. So uh, whether or not the Board of Supervisors feels one way or another, um, 
it's still the voters, you know, who have to take that up. So, you know, uh, we just got rid of discretionary review for small buildings um, all over the West Side. Uh, that was the single most contentious issue for uh, homeowners associations because folks are used to like having a say over everything that happens next door, right? It's a culture shift. Um, and so I think that um, there are ways, I personally think that, you know, that you could have appropriate discretionary review. Um, I don't think it should be for everything, which is what we have right now. So I was on the planning commission for five years, and I have to tell you, I dreaded those things. So DRs took up so much of our time and energy, and they came after a very long agenda, usually at 10, 12, and that's when like people were angriest, you know, and usually the discretionary review was one neighbor upset that the neighbor's deck was like two inches over where they should be. And so I do think a lot of it is a waste of time, energy, and resources that the staff should be like spending doing other stuff for sure, um, but it's in our charter. Although I will say on, it is the charter, and that's why we, that's why the supervisor and I both supported Prop D and opposed Prop E, um, which would have stripped it out of the charter in a lot of situations. Uh, although it's good, we we there are things that the board and the mayor can do to, to make it the bare minimum until we can fix the charter, or until state law just overrides all of it, um, which state law can do and we're moving in that direction. Um, but for example, San Francisco requires a lot of conditional use permits, which is basically like discretionary review on steroids because it must go to the planning commission and then, and then it can be appealed to the board of supervisors. Um, the, you know, and so we need to be reducing the number of conditional use permits and that will move towards more of a buy right situation. Thank you, uh, both of you, for your presentation tonight. Um, obviously, there's a lot of talk about cutting discretionary review and cutting some of the environmental review and community impact um, review process, and that's been an agenda for a while now. I'm curious why there's not more discussion here tonight about um, the uh, at least some number of thousands of, of homes that are vacant. There's some debate about which ones, how many are immediately available, but there are a minimum of 7,000 that our researchers have said are immediately usable and rentable. And in addition to that, uh, city-owned land and city-owned buildings, school district-owned buildings, um, there are so many sites. And the last item, there are also I believe thousands of already permitted units that have already been approved. Um, I understand there are a lot of financing issues. I'm just sort of puzzled as to the fixation on gutting an environmental and community review, which I know can be burdensome and frustrating at times. But why not more focus on some of these other uh, more available housing options? Thank you. Thanks for the question, Chris. Um, so I um, will start by saying that um, you know this legislation that we just passed uh, on the board to uh, streamline uh, you know four units in single-family homes was um, exactly motivated by the fact that there's a lot of 
empty single family homes on the west side. And you know, the problem is why they're not occupied is that most of these homes uh, were built 75, 80 years ago. They need electrical. They need, uh, you know, uh, new windows. They need uh, Wi-Fi. They need all kinds of things. Plumbing. Some of them have lead plumbing. So in order to make them habitable, you need to like invest a ton of money, and then you'd have a single-family home that you've like it's worth you know three million dollars. And so you know we need to do something better so that you know that we can have more housing units, but also that the economics work out. Um, as to the issue of there being on the east side of town a bunch of empty apartments, uh, you know, there have been some studies, I've seen some studies, and that was um, the impetus behind the empty homes tax. We do not currently have a mechanism to force owners to rent their homes. And so until we do, uh, while we have a housing crisis, we must produce housing. It's just, you know, we have created... Uh, 15 jobs for every one housing unit during, you know, the 15 years prior to the pandemic. And it is a cumulative debt that we're still paying off. So whether or not, you know, some folks left San Francisco during the pandemic or whether there's empty units, we're still far behind. So until we have a mechanism to fill those units, we have to be able to provide housing to the folks who need it in San Francisco. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I agree with some of the things you said, but I want to point out a few things. First of all, if it, there's a, a tr as long as I've been involved in San Francisco politics, there's been a raging battle about how many vacant homes uh, there are. And it's, it's, it's actually a really interesting uh, debate play out. But if there, if there are 7,000, last, the last data I saw was San Francisco has about 350,000 housing units. It's probably a little more than that uh, now, but let's say it's probably around there. Seven thousand out of three hundred fifty thousand, I believe, is if my math is right, is two percent. Um, I think a normal healthy vacancy rate is somewhere around three to four percent. If you if the vacancy rate is too low, that is unhealthy because then people actually physically cannot even identify a home to try to purchase or rent. If it's too high, that's not that's not good either. Um, and so if the vacancy rate, if it, if it is 2%, there, there's nothing abnormal or unhealthy um, uh, about that. Um, you, you mentioned community review and environmental review. Um, I don't lump those together. Those are two extremely different things. Um, community review, I actually think is Im important. And I say this as a former neighborhood association president, former supervisor. I think it's always good to have community involvement. This isn't about eliminating community involvement. It's about whether there should be a beginning and a middle and an end of the process. And should does the community process need to take years and years so that anyone, even if they represent a tiny minority of the community, is empowered to stop the project, which is extremely anti-democratic? Um, does, does a community process have to mean 50 community meetings, or could you do it in three community meetings? In terms of environmental, I dispute I fundamentally dispute that the Stevenson Street project by a BART station, 500 units, that that, that that has anything to do with the environment. Like I, and, and so we need to be clear that, that, we need to be clear that the California Environmental Quality Act, which is a very important law that, that plays a, a number of extremely important rules in analyzing environmental impacts of actually harmful potentially harmful projects around talk like 
you know, a factory that could have toxics in it or a new freeway or a dam and so forth, it's getting applied and at times abused for projects where the objection has nothing to do w w with the environment. If you are building by a train station, if you, and in fact, if you're not building, and this is where a, a flaw in CEQA, if you are saying we're not gonna build 500 homes by a train station, well, well people have to live somewhere, that means you're gonna induce sprawl and that actually harms uh, the environment. So I think when, in the bills that I do, that, that take projects out of sequel, whether it's housing or public transportation, we make clear that this is about environmentally sustainable projects that do not need that kind of environmental review. I have no interest in taking sprawl housing uh, out of out of CEQA, uh, and and I think we need to uh, really um, distinguish. And I am all about um, using surplus land uh, for housing. And the school district, I think, is finally starting to get. Some of Daly City ate our lunch. Daly City, we, we, while we were not building, Daly City got ahead, out ahead of us and actually built, student so you know, I visited and the teachers are all living there. It's like amazing and San Francisco needs to really accelerate. Let's get a question on this side. Okay, I'm going to the front. We're making our way through the jungle gym of chairs. I'm gonna hold the mic for you. Hello. Um, this question is for sort of both because it's tiered at the local and at the state level. Um, I think you guys keep using the word political and I think something that becomes very different and more confusing to people who live in San Francisco and California is that partisanship falls away and tribalism takes over. And for people who are less involved on the day-to-day -day politics of a city or a state that is very blue across the board, it can be the sort of pick your own adventure politics of what are my own opinions and where do they fall into something that isn't as easy to identify as partisan, where we might be able to make an opinion that sits under the cover of Democrat or Republican. And at the state level, I mean, we just saw in Ohio and basically exact same two thirds vote and it had something sexy and identifiable like abortion to be this front for it. And here in California, you don't have an issue as partisan or identifiable, and yet you're gonna get into things like fees and housing, which because they aren't partisan, you lose a lot of people's attention. So what do you envision that political landscape being and what can people preemptively be doing from a campaigning and a fundraising point of view to make that as sexy and engaging as something in Ohio? I don't know if I, I don't know if I can make it I don't know if I can make it sexy I mean how I think how, I think actually actually I think housing is is sexy because I, I will say that I, I'm a really boring person and I'm like and, and, the, and all these like cool young people come up to me on the street and they're like I love your housing work it's like that I'm like so I guess housing is sexy but um but but a important point you made is um, housing is so not a a partisan issue, and we saw like the state of Montana. All these right-wing Republicans were like, "We don't want to be, we don't want to be California," and they and adopted all these Yimby, like um, uh, laws, uh, getting out ahead of a lot of blue states. But I will tell you, in the legislature, um, we, uh, it, it is amazing the coalitions that we have around housing. All the big housing bills that I've authored and other ones that I've helped other people pass, you will have borderline Marxist Democrats, and Uber MAGA Republicans supporting it, and you will have borderline Marxist Democrats and Uber MAGA Republicans 
opposing it. There's just no rhyme or reason in terms of partisanship. And it really, because housing, housing, it affects everywhere. I, I had a, a, like a super mag, a former colleague, who I, I had a, our, our big housing, SB 50, if people remember that, that would have rezoned the entire state. It ended up not passing, but it was great in changing the conversation. I remember talking to uh, from inland San Diego County, who was like a co-chair of the Trump campaign. And he said, you know, I, I want to co-author your bill because my grandkids started moving to Arizona. I don't want them to move to Arizona. I want them here. That's the same thing I hear from lefty Democrats in Glen Park who were like, I didn't like your housing policy before, but I support you now because my kids are moving their grandkids out of state and I want them to stay here. It's the same thing. And that's what's so powerful about it because it cuts through all the partisanship. So um, I do think it's really sexy. Um, and I would say that um, it is a new shakeup of uh, political alliances uh, in, on the local level. And if there's any way that I would characterize that it, it is a generational change. And I think that that's a good thing. Um, but you know, you also have to think about who has been excluded from the housing market um, here locally and everywhere in California. And it, it's um, you know mostly people of color. And so I just came back from the uh, Unidos US conference, national conference, which I've attended for the past uh, 14 years. Um, and uh, you know, they had a uh, workshop just about housing. And it was definitely a pro-housing workshop. And the way folks talked about it was, you know, um, generational wealth and building assets for the Latino community is something that is so important. And if you look at the difference of assets and wealth between black households and white households, you know, it's all based on housing. Who has been excluded? So I do think that there is a great opportunity for new alliances um, in this generation to cut through and make it sexy because it is, you know, but it is also issues. It It, it is, um, you know, it cuts over issues of, of race, of class, of gender often as well. Um, and I think there's great opportunity to do that. If I could just say one more thing on the, the politics, this I think it's important. I think a lot of times when we talk about like the people who are opposing housing, there is a perception that they are a majority and they usually are not. I'm not saying they never are in a particular community, but they usually are not. We know it from the polling. The polling in San, San Francisco and the Bay Area statewide is extremely pro-housing, including questions like, are you okay with having a multi-unit um, apartment building on your street? Right, and, uh, and and so the, the the politics are definitely there, and I'll give an example. My um, we had a bill, Senate Bill Nine, that we passed in 2021 that that basically um, eliminated single-family zoning in California, made everything duplex or fourplex uh, zoning, and it's been a slow start, but I think it's starting to accelerate. That it got so much. There was so much drama around that bill. And, and I'll tell you, I thought the Bay Area had tough housing politics until I met Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> Los Angeles, it is, that the politics are really, really tough on housing. It, it's starting to improve, but it's been really tough. Senate bill, SB9, there were like, people had lawn signs in LA opposing SB9. And there, um, one of my colleagues, Senator Holly Mitchell, which is my favorite colleagues ever, amazing human being, she was running for the LA County Board of Supervisors, which they represent two million people on the LA County Board of Supervisors. So she was running in this hard race against the president of the city council. 
he was making the campaign about opposing SB9 because there are all these lawn signs and all these people with pitchforks who were so angry about this duplex bill. And so he, he was campaigning. On, and, and my colleague, she cast a heart, she voted for it. She cast the right vote and she voted for it. He started attacking her for it. And it was like really intense. She creamed him in that race. It was like a, almost a 60-40 race. She creamed him. And so that, to me, sent this just loud, loud message about the politics of housing. So thank you, everybody. We have time for just one more. I'm going to do it back here. Okay. I'll hold it. Oh, yeah. thank you. Okay. Hi, um, Jen Nosikoff. I am out in District 1, and <laughs> hey. <laughs> Um, and I, my question for you, um, I'm starting to talk to more and more of my neighbors about housing. Um, and I would love to hear like, kind of like, what's your quick and dirty on people who maybe don't really care that much? Or how do we take the conversations that we're having here in this room out into the community? What would your advice be? And how would you proceed in that with that? So I, I don't know anybody who doesn't care. I think that they just pretend that the reality is different than what it is. But I think that, you know, everyone that I've talked to in my district who does not want to see housing will complain about the homeless. Uh, and they will uh, complain about um, the students at San Francisco State, you know, taking up all the ADUs. And they will complain of uh, any number of the RVs parked on with, I mean, any number of things, right? What the problem is that they don't make the connection. They don't make the connection between our policies, the privilege that we've preserved for people like them, and the current situation. And so, you know, I, um, you know, my whole shtick on the board is that I get along with everybody. <laughs> you know, I try to be kind and smiley. Um, and I do think that, um, you know, that does go a long way with folks who will initially put up a wall and be like, no, you know, um, and just engage. Engage with your neighbors and do it with kindness. And eventually, they will make that connection. And we have. I think if you look at the conversations we're having today versus 10 years ago, they're vastly different. And, and sure, it's been complicated. It's it's been the great work that um, our uh, senator and others have done at the state. It's been the movement uh, as well. But it's also the recognition that the earth is getting warmer, that you know the sea level is rising, that uh, we need to use the land in a different way, that we need to use public transportation and produce less carbon. All of these things, I think, are coming home to roost, and people are growing. There's a growing recognition that all these things go together. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I just wanted to. Uh, I just want to answer that too. I, and I agree with what what the supervisor said. I would also just making it real for people that do. Do you think that cafe workers and your kids' teachers and and the people that you know are working in our community should be able to live here too? And do you want your kids to be able to choose to live here? I think that makes it real for people personally. Yeah. Sure. So eighty-two thousand in eight years, when our average is, what, 2,600 a year? How is this supposed to happen? And who is supposed to pay for it? And if we don't build, what does the hammer down look like? Yeah, the, so, and I will own that I authored the law that increased the numbers. Um, because it used to be that, it used to be uh, that, that cities, you know, you like, you know, the city of West Hollywood 
great city. They were like, we met our housing goals. Well, their housing goal was like 120 homes over eight years. <laughs> Beverly Hills, it was three homes over <laughs> eight years. Um, and, and, and San Francisco was 27,000 homes. We, the numbers were just way too low. And what we did, it was sort of like, it was a ground truthing, right? It was saying, what do we actually need? And it turns out the numbers we need were a lot higher than what we were allocating to cities, knowing that it's going to be hard. No one said this is going to be easy. And we have to, we have to make it easier and faster and less expensive to actually build. And, if it, and, and that was not happening. And if this is what causes it to happen, um, then, that, then, I, then I think that that is, is, a good, is absolutely a good thing. Um, and I think there's also, you know, it was pointed out we have a lot of projects that haven't uh, been built. We have to make sure that they get, that's a lot of new homes. If we can get Treasure Island built and Park Merced built and the shipyard built and Schlaglock and Stone, there's, there's a lot that can happen. Um, and, and, you know, I, and I, I think in the end, we're also doing things at the state level to try to help make it faster. So I'm not saying... It's easy. It's a huge challenge. I totally acknowledge that. But but it's better to have that than to pretend like we can like have a much smaller number and just pretend that that's enough when it's not enough.